every company is a data company. Every company is a technology company. We are producing a chicken, but we have a lot of data and we have a lot of technology that can be used to use to take that data and transform it into something so meaningful that's going to change how we how we improve food safety, how we improve uh, the quality of the meat, and how we uh, how we serve our customers better. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, sustainable poultry solutions, from essential vitamins like HYD to next-generation products like Hyphorius, for efficient phosphorus utilization and Biofix to counteract naturally occurring metabolites in feed. Our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the poultry industry. Visit dsm.com forward slash ANH to learn more about our newest solutions. Welcome everybody to the Poultry Podcast Show. My name is Doug Korber. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast and today we're happy to welcome Dr. Amit Moray. Uh, he is an Associate Professor of Poultry Processing at Auburn University. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Mori. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's good to have you here. So uh, how long have you been at Auburn? So technically, I've been at Auburn since 2007 because I started my PhD at Auburn. I studied uh, my PhD in poultry science at Auburn from 2007 to 12. Then I was out in the industry for uh, for three-ish years and then started my career as an assistant professor in the Department of Poultry Science since 2015. Um, so since then, I'm here. Okay, great. Um, you've had maybe a little bit different pathway into the poultry industry than uh, many of our guests. So uh, can you talk a little bit about your background, your uh, undergraduate and master's degree? Absolutely, yes. It is It is very fascinating. And it, to date, it, it, I just look back and I'm like, how did this happen? But let me share a story. I'm, my undergrad is fish and fishery sciences, where we learned everything about fish, the production, the diseases, every you know how to catch and make nets and build boats. Everything that there has to be. Um, I really like the people aspect of it and the ability of our, and it is still under agriculture. So it, the ability of our field to really impact the the daily lives of the stakeholders from uh, from the poorest of the poor to exports and otherwise. And so then uh, I went on to do my first master's in industrial fishery technology where I was looking on ground, uh, ground fish, it, essentially surimi technology, uh, looking at the biochemistry of the meat, the microbiology of the meat and the storage and the phosphates and the salts and uh, the, the protein gelation, 
um, uh, you know, the, just in general, the overall biochemistry of the uh, of the ground meat. Uh, moving on, I had a chance to get go to Alaska and study seafood even more. So I was doing uh, seafood microbiology, uh, especially uh, studying spoilage of salmon, pink, uh, sam- pink salmon there. And I also did a lot of uh, biochemistry like the fatty acid uh, lipids of bacteria as well as fish, uh, developing different products like uh, a fish jerky and then developing processes. So all this was going on, and I loved the applied part of the story, although I kind of started realizing that I was going a lot more molecular. And I like molecular, but I think I want to create an impact. I want to be where I can make a change in the lives of the people. So I started looking around, and I had enough background in seafood. Uh, I was trying to get into interdisciplinary approach to my career. And I like that because I want to be a lot more well-rounded person or well-rounded scientist as I go into the, uh, to my career. So I uh, looked around and uh, r- found out that Auburn University Poultry Science had a professor, uh, Dr. Shelley McKee, and uh, she had a position open. And she did very much, her website said she works on applied sciences and uh, antimicrobial applications. Uh, on poultry, killing salmonella, campylobacter, all that kind of stuff. And I was like very interested in it. I called her. I, I came here and I didn't know anything about poultry, frankly. I did not know anything other. My first class was pretty in, interesting in my PhD where I found out chicken has parts. I did not know until that point how big this chicken industry was. And uh, I learned it. I embraced it. I loved it from the get go. Literally from the first class, I loved it. And uh, the, the real hook, line, and sinker was IPP. I had gone to IPP in January of two, 2008. I was like, how big is this going to be? It's one chicken and one egg. I come from seafood where there's like 3,000, you know, species, commercial species, 5,000, whatever that is, that are traded. And there's such a big industry. How big is this chicken industry going to be? I took those elevators down to the IPP floor and I've never come back. And it is an ever fascinating field and... I'm I'm very happy and very blessed to be part of this family. So was uh, working in fisheries or, or aquaculture or, or um, commercial uh, fisheries, was that something that interested you even as a child or uh, an interest that uh, sort of developed as you were a university student? So... Uh, my dad is a food scientist. He has uh, he's in charge of a food testing lab, uh, or he was uh, he retired um, uh, in India um, in the Indian FDA, and so he had the food microbiology lab, the food chemistry lab. So food, growing around food, talking about food chemistry, talking about the safety of the food, the safety of the water, where to eat, where not to eat. Uh, looking at MPN, I mean, looking at you know, just at least going and visiting him, uh, looking at water activities and all those things, they, they were very much part of my repertoire on a regular basis. It so happens that my father was transferred to a coastal town uh, where seafood was a big, you know, big, big, big industry. And at the same time, there was a um, uh, the University of Agriculture Sciences had their fisheries college in that coastal town as well. And it, my mom asked a professor from there, and she was like, yeah, you know, he should come. There is a lot of scope. He can become a professor. And from that day, even before going into the first day of college, for some other reason, it was in my head that, you know, I want to become a professor. So <laughs> that's, that's how I got into it. But once I got into it, 
I really like the applied approach. I really like uh, where uh, the approach where I can make a difference in the lives of people. So that's that's how actually I got into it, and I just you know. So it, it was kind of a natural progression from growing up in your childhood. So that's that's great. Yeah. Yes. It was. So when we're talking about uh, fish, whether when we're talking about poultry. Um, as you mentioned, we are talking about making a difference in the lives of people, in feeding people, feeding, feeding, um, providing high quality products to uh, people that need those nutrients. So, uh, what are some of the the similarities uh, between the the fish uh, industry and the the poultry industry? We are obviously, you know, when I come from the fish side, I'm coming from the processing side. So, the processing side again, you're getting a pro- getting raw material. You're processing it in fish. You'll be filleting it. You'll be making it into small pieces. You batter bread, fry, package, or you freeze it, or you sell it refrigerated. Uh, you package it in different things. So, or you make it into ground meat like surimi, which is you know, and then sell it. It has its own problems. So, although the species might be different and the biochemical compositions might be different, but some of the problems that we inherently face are the same: the food safety problems, the shelf life problems, the meat quality problems. There's something called a chalky halibut that or or there's like the shrimp which looks very chalky as well at times so there are those things that happen there there are texture issues with fish um, because of how you defrost it how you freeze it how you defrost it the water holding capacities all those things those those fundamental characteristics of quality remain the same the principles of biochemistry and how the proteins how the fats, how, uh, the lipids, um, the water, how the, their interaction, their interplay is remains the same for a for fish species as well. There is of course more or less a difference. I mean, fish. Uh, if you're talking taking salmon, I mean, you've got astaxanthins, zeaxanthins, and all that. Versus in poultry, we we are not worried about that, especially breast meat and all. So there are there is a lot of crossover and transfer. Uh, And just like they're interested in new technologies to freeze the fish to look at the quality of the fish, we are the same thing in the poultry industry to look at the quality and the safety of the uh, of chicken and chicken breast fillets. And that's that's how I transferred my knowledge from the fishery side, the basics into the the poultry side. And I use some of the principles from there as well into the poultry side. And uh, sometimes from the poultry side, if I get a chance, I I cross transfer to the to the seafood side because that is the real advantage of being an interdisciplinary um, uh, scientist, if you will, or trained interdisciplinary trained scientist. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there I mean, there's obvious differences, but in in terms of the work that you do, are there any interesting or notable differences between how you would approach a problem in fish versus how you would approach the, a similar problem in, in poultry? Um, differences wise, I think the, the pre-harvest and the harvest and the handling of the fish, of course, an aquatic organism with a different microflora coming in to the, uh, uh, to the, the processing plant, the diversity of seafood that there is. I mean, you've got shrimp and you've got crabs and you've got fish and you've got fatty fish and you have lean fish and then you've got pelagic and you have demersal fish. So the the biochemistry of it changes and then that thus changes how you're handling certain things. Thus changes what could be some of the 
food safety issues that that you may be facing. Uh, it could be, say, a catfish here in Alabama. You have got hybrid catfish. You've got uh, the the straight up channel catfish there. There could be multiple different kinds there that affect texture. On on our so that that's the difference in the poultry side. We are. I mean, we have our gallus gallus, and that's that's great. So that kind of reduces a lot of things. We are, although there are multiple strains and and so on and so forth, and but still, our main commercial species, the broiler, uh, still remains strong. And so, the the bigger advantage actually in poultry is that we are so focused on the broiler and egg and making it better for the for the industry to improve its food feed conversion ratios and all those kind of things that it makes it a lot more better for us to strengthen our industry. And of course, we have a lot more control over how we grow the chicken and, 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 you know, it's nutrition and the post harvest and so on. So uh, there are that, that is a stark difference is the, just the sheer variety that you get in seafood versus here. It's very much focused approach that makes us, much more able to strengthen our industry much more faster and make changes as well. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about some of the work that you're doing currently. Um, you've had a strong focus on woody breasts. So um, just for the benefit of our audience, can you uh, describe briefly woody breast and then talk about the research that you're doing in that area? Absolutely. So. Um, when I first started in poultry science, our chickens would not be four and a half, five pounds if that. And as I went through like 2010, I believe, um, 2009, 20, uh, 2009, 2010, I saw the advent of these fast-growing big broilers, at least from research perspective as what we are doing. We saw, uh, you know, eight-pound birds, nine-pound birds, and we started seeing the white striping as well. And then... And I distinctly remember one time we were doing white striping research in 2009 and our, my advisor, we were, we were just doing the depth of the breast fillets and there were just these giant breast fillets and my professor stabbed like a, uh, a micro screw gauge or something or a vernier caliper, something like that into the meat just for the sake of it. And she's like, look how tough it is. And that was my the first time I actually saw what meat, tough meat looks like mm-hmm. then I moved on um and what that that but when i came back to the poultry science that issue had exasperated and it had become a industry-wide issue where uh, we were calling it woody breast and woody breast is essentially uh, a myopathy uh, muscle degenerative issue if you will in the breast fillet of the of the chicken where you will have um, increase in, uh, decrease in the number of myofibrillar uh, uh, proteins or the fibers essentially and the increase in the size of the fibers as well as proliferation of collagen in there. Uh, lots of water um, just kind of hanging out in there because it does it's not attached to the myofibrillar proteins. And uh, because of these conditions, when the product is, uh, say, cooked, uh, you will lose a lot more water that means its water holding capacity is lower. The product is going to be tougher and chewier. Um, your people, you may end up seeing uh, the product becoming drier, and as a result, uh, you will have uh, customer complaints. We also see issues with marinade retention capacities in terms of meat quality. So these are some of the issues that 
that are surrounding woody breast. And uh, it is mostly in the fast-growing big broilers where we're getting eight-pound birds in eight uh, eight weeks. And some companies, of course, grow 10, 11-pound birds as well. So these fast-growing big broilers have this problem and customers demand high quality. Um, they are paying premium price for a high-quality protein, which is poultry. So that's where... Um, uh, that's where the woody breast issue came in. And I got attracted to the issue because when I joined in 2015, I found out that uh, the companies are deboning the uh, chicken on the debone line and there are workers who stand there and press the breast fillet by hand. And I was like, we are 2015, we cannot be pressing breast fillets by hand. I mean, there is enough technology that is out there that you can probably look and and you know, detect woody breast because when a person is doing it, it's really cold in there. You know, it's about 40 degrees or less, either anywhere 38 to 40 degrees. It's very cold. Somebody's standing there and touching the breast fillets, which are even colder. And if they're, if they're doing that, their hands get numb. They're going to, they're getting paid minimum wage. So they're not really going to pay attention uh, to look at the tough uh, meat. And so now the tough meat will get into the combo, which where the regular breast meat is. Or you may have a false positive or a false negative kind of a situation there. So you will you lose money either way or you may end up like having customer complaints. So that was the inflection point for me to say, you know, something needs to be done here where we need to provide technologies to the industry so that they can take out woody breast. And then we can, you know, divert the product to something else. But you can create a category product where... You have high quality product without much, much woody breast. And that's how I got started in the realm of woody breast research. Um, so uh, moving forward, like if when, when I took that breast meat and I was like, what to do with it and how? Uh, my one thing is that I want to create something that the industry can use on a regular basis. So doing texture analysis, yes, great, but you have to take the meat, you have to bring it to the, uh, you know, your, your lab, you have to cook it, you have to, or there are uncooked breast fillet methods as well, or you have to press it in, in the machine and stuff like that. But that's not how it can be done in the industry when the line is running and you've got so many products that are, you know, the, the breast fillets are literally flying on that, on that debone line. So... I was, I started, I, I wanted to understand what is in it without cutting the meat. So I took that and did an ultrasound only to see that when you do an ultrasound of the breast fillet without woody breast, you can see some nice fibers and everything. When you, when you do it with uh, woody breast, there's just like static. You don't get the signals back. Then we did elastography where we sent sig- sound waves through. So when you send sound waves, if the denser the meat, the faster the signals will travel, the sound waves will travel. And so we could see the difference. Like in woody breast, sound waves travel at seven meters per second versus in normal meat, it um, travels at four meters per second. So a significant difference between that. So that comes to a, as a multiphasic approach, but I was still not very happy with it because, you know, you have to have the gel and you have to have one probe and it has to be oriented. So you're looking at only one small area and so on. So Auburn University luckily had a seven Tesla MRI. So one of the 47 Tesla MRIs, the highest end MRI machines in the world was at Auburn. And I decided to stick the breast fillets in there and we did MRI on woody breast. And to my 
surprise, I could see water kind of hanging in there, just like free water inside the meat to realize that there is just collagen built up. And so that, that's why the water is hanging in there. So what do you do with that information? The MRI costed me $650 an hour and we could do like two fillets. So, but that was a great start to understand what's going on. So I was like, if we have water, that means there is a change in the ionic concentration. That means there is a change in the electrical uh, properties of the meat. That's where I started getting into the detection part of it. And so I looked at uh, the, I bought some electrodes from like a store and started looking at the electrical properties. And I was like, if I keep doing this, it would take me 20 years even before I could take this technology to market or to make a difference in our in our stakeholders' lives. So I started uh, looking around, and lo and behold, there was a seafood uh, a company that makes a bioelectrical impedance device for seafood quality. And it turns out they are in Alaska, and they knew my advisors and everything. So it, it was just like coming back. And they're they're looking at halibuts and salmons and and the sane uh, uh, sane boats and stuff like that. So I was like, hey, can I can I check it on this woody breast? They're like, what is this woody breast? And so we started that conversation. They're they're excited to see how they can use their technology. This and the company is called Seafood Analytics for a reason because they are doing seafood. I got that machine and we started looking at it. And lo and behold, you could see the difference in the resistance and reactance patterns of woody breast versus normal meat. So a handheld technology could be used now to separate out meat without the interference of uh, of a personnel and or a human bias, correct? And so you can get accurate results. So that's how we developed the first technology. And um, oh, we did research on it for about two, three years. The, and uh, it was introduced to processors. So they were at the time, and I'm not updated on how many processors have it or not, but I remember that they had like six processors who had uh, who were using this technology to detect woody breast as well. So the reason to go with the company and partner with them early on with scientific research is that the time to market is reduced. The impact that you can create is 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 bigger and faster. So that's one of the lessons that I learned early on with in terms of this woody breast detection and all that. And so over the years, we have done uh, several other technologies that we can talk about. Yeah, as, as a researcher, it's always satisfying when uh, there's industry uptake of uh, of the results of your work. So um, is this equipment, uh, it's available, uh, readily available. Does it need to be adapted in any way to look specifically at woody breast versus fish meat quality? No. So the equipment, it's very modular. Essentially, it has four electrodes. And uh, when I had it, it was like a slightly bigger machine. It was like a cup, a pound or so. It had long electrodes. And now they have come up with something that is as big as a small, like a box of cigarettes, essentially, hmm. uh, which can be easily put in the pocket. The, the main thing that you need to do is to optimize the resistance and reactance to your level of woody breast. So because each company has their scale of, you know, zero, one, two, three, or zero, zero, one, and two, or, you know, woody or not, and stuff like that. So you need to tell us what is your zero and what is your one. Give us the samples. We test it, or you test it, send the data, so that we can create the algorithm 
and uh, in such that when you use it later on, that it, it can be easily adapted. The other thing is also, I, and since all this is related to water as well, and, and of course, electrical properties change because of the integrity of the cells and the conductivity of the, uh, of the medium, because the, uh, the electrical signals can either go through the cell or it can get bounced, uh, bounced off or stuff like that. So if you have a certain kind of process we have to optimize it for that particular process. So if you are doing small birds or you're doing like eight, nine or 10 pound birds, that mm-hmm. versus then you suddenly want to do like seven pound birds, it's better to have a small optimization done for the other kind of birds. And it's not very difficult. It can be easily done and you can you can easily use it. So it's readily available in the market uh, with a minor slight optimization. Uh, you should be able to use it as a quality assurance check. You can use it as a um, as a receiving uh, quality assurance, or you know, having a COA uh, in terms of woody breast to tell that yes, we have X amount of woody breast or not woody breast or something like that. That allays the fears about quality of the product, especially when companies are marinating it or slicing the thing, you know, and doing some products. So. It is a very helpful and easy to use tool um, as, as such, but it is not an, at this point, it is not an inline tool. It is more of a quality assurance tool. Okay. Yet it is, it is something very easy to use, easy to obtain. You does, don't need any infrastructure. You can carry it in your pocket. It's connected to Wi-Fi and it can give a decision on its own on your on the phone. Right. Do you, do you see a, a development or an application in the future for an inline tool where each breast could be evaluated and, as you mentioned, diverted for one purpose or another. Yes. Yeah, so uh, that was one of the things that the industry kept coming back to me and said, well, you know what, this is a technology where somebody has to go there and physically check it. So there were, uh, we had made attempts where the electrodes could be potentially put into like conveyor belt mm-hmm. situation and the breast fillet would go on top and then can you detect woody breast, yes or no kind of idea. And so we were able to successfully do that. Uh, we are looking forward to the next phases of that that research, uh, where it could be done uh, in the in the conveyor or some sort of like a plate, metal plate, where the meat will go. Because all we need to do is a conduct have a conducting surface and conduct that. But then again, the industry came and said, "Well, you know, you're touching the fillets, and we don't want the fillets to be touched. We want the fillets." And so we came up with. Uh, we worked with one other company. They were using these um, microwaves to measure the thickness of paints in air, off the airplanes. Hmm. And so the microwaves penetrate and they, they give back a spectra and stuff like that. So that is essentially what happens. So we took that technology, partnered with them. And so without, so in the, the probe is essentially like a marker, a thick marker, if you will. And so you, you just put the marker fan on, on, over the fillet. It sends the signal, comes back, and you we were able to detect woody breast or not on the fillet. Hmm. And so such mark, such probes can be hung over conveyor belts as the product is going, and then you have these automatic arms that are going to kick the kick the product out, and so on and so forth. They we took that technology further and said, can we detect woody breast all the way in live chickens? And uh, we were able to actually detect without, in, and it takes less than one second 
in fact, to detect woody breast. So you take take the probe. There was a spacer cone, essentially. It, it was like more like a, a small plastic glass, if you will, or a cup, uh, because we wanted to keep the distance between the probe and the, and the target constant. So we had that spacer probe. So you just put that on the breast of the chicken, hold, mm-hmm. hold the chicken swing, hold, uh, put that, uh, you know, press the trigger, and that's it. And you just let the chicken go. So you can use, and we had used that in live chickens. We used it on pre-chill wogs, post-chill wogs, and on fillets. And through using artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms, my student was also able to extract the wavelengths that are corresponding to woody breast uh, detection in at different stages of processing. So the same technology can be used in multiple places as well. So this is another technology that is very, very exciting. Uh, and it doesn't cost a whole lot. It doesn't, you know, it's not a million dollars or something. It's, it could be, you know, ten, some tens of tens of hundreds yeah. of dollars, but that's not a whole lot. Yeah, that, that's really intriguing because I can see uh, lots of applications, whether it's uh, using, in, using it in breeding programs or uh, experimental research pre-harvest intended to reduce the incidence of woody breast. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great technology. Um, maybe this is a good uh, jumping off point. Um, you've been interested in Industry 4.0. Yeah. Uh, so can you explain what you mean by Industry 4.0 and, and uh, bring our readers up to sp- our audience up to speed in, in what that is and how the poultry industry can use it? Yeah, absolutely. So Industry 4.0 is where you have the interconnectedness of data, where you have these advanced machines. And most of our machines are collecting data on a regular basis, but we are not connecting the data to make database decisions um, or there are no decision support systems that are uh, where we are using cloud computing, artificial intelligence, machine learning to converge all this data and make better decisions to improve food safety, quality, shelf life of uh, of poultry. Specifically, we'll talk about the poultry industry as such. So we are talking about, you know, in in my sense, when I look at it, we are a vertically integrated industry, but our data is very siloed. At times, we don't share the data. I mean, as simple as salmonella. I mean, it. we know that it comes from live chickens. We are collecting some data, but we are not connecting that data, probably not as much as we should. We are not connecting that data as much as we should with the environment, maybe with uh, with the monitoring practices. Are we making decisions before the product comes into the processing plant on how to schedule the flock? Uh, high, uh, you know, uh, high prevalence of salmonella flock, can be at the end of the day and so on and so forth. So those things, uh, or is it possible that we know what flock is coming in and your machines can automatically adjust how much, san- uh, you know, PAA or an antimicrobial can be sprayed on the chicken on that particular flock of, you know, 20, 40,000 chickens. So is all that essentially the conversions of the data that is being collected from various different places in or in the vertical integration um, getting into the cloud using AI ML, sending that and using that as your decision support system and it, and making database decisions is what I consider would be our industry 4.2 approaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's uh, maybe something that um, is becoming more and more available uh, to the poultry industry. And 
Uh, are there specific efforts um, that are unique to uh, poultry or is it a matter of taking advantage of um, technologies or algorithms or um, uh, approaches from other industries as well? well? I think the time is right, right now where AI ML is much more easily accessible, easily doable. Cloud computing is as accessible as there could be than before. Uh, there are companies who can do these algorithms for you. There are companies who can integrate the data for you. There's, so there's a lot more movement now than it was before. So it's making much more easier for us to do it. One of the greatest advantages that the poultry industry has and is the fact that we are vertically integrated. We are under one roof, one umbrella. And we have the ability to collect the data at different places and converge that um, you know, through, through different means. And and make the make those real time decisions, and the real time decisions is also very important because our industry moves so fast. And I'm on the processing side, so I can talk about that more. So, I mean, uh, 140 to 180 birds a minute is a very fast speed, at least in the U.S. We're, you know, Europe might be slightly higher, but uh, we want to make real time decisions because we want to improve food safety. Our number of salmonella incidences, illnesses, have not changed. However, the salmonella numbers in poultry has reduced. So something is happening somewhere. Mm -hmm. And traditional knowledge, oh yeah, this person knows something or I've been in the industry for 20 years, I can make, you know, I can change something and that's great and I respect that. But I think we need that institutionalized knowledge in terms of data in these algorithms so we can make them better and better to predict. And Subject matter experts, trained, you know, poultry science students or or otherwise, and experienced personnel to take that data into consideration as to what could be happening in the future. How can we chart a better course? So that that's how the the poultry industry can can move forward in that um, in in that direction. And I can tell you that a lot of other industries are also moving in the same direction as well. We are talking about robotics and automation and deboning, for example. Think about the simple fact that if you're getting a lot of keel bone or you're getting some sort of like a broken bone uh, in, in the final product for that particular flock uh, or from that particular farmer or something of that nature, now there is, uh, you know, Foodmates uh, deboning machine also does x-rays. Can we use those X-rays and the data from all the all these bone fragments that are coming in to tie it back all the way to the farmer and the nutrition and how can we improve nutrition and so on and so forth? So there is a lot more data collected. We need to add meaning to it, and I tell this very firmly to a lot of people and with a lot of optim optimism, is that every company is a data company. Every company is a technology company. We are producing a chicken, but we have a lot of data and we have a lot of technology that can be used to use to take that data and transform it into something so meaningful that's going to change how we how, how we improve food safety, how we improve uh, the quality of the meat, and how we uh, how we serve our customers better. It sounds like there's the potential for uh, an almost overwhelming amount of data. And so uh, I know on the on the 
metabolomic side, you know, we've seen the the growth of the bioinformatics field is, do you think something similar is coming on the processing uh, side, or as you mentioned, even on an integrated company basis? Absolutely. I mean, on processing side, I mean, we, we are, uh, you know, we are going to look at bigger and bigger data and try to come up with how we can optimize our processing, um, you know, antimicrobial use. Focus could be salmonella and uh, or even shelf life or quality. And so I can give you one example of the la- uh, something that we have been working on for the last about five years or so, where we said that as an industry, processors, I mean, I would say, and uh, we do everything in our ca- capacities to improve food safety and shelf life of the product. We spray it on antimicrobials, we, we rinse the carcasses, we rinse the products, and we look at the salmonella prevalence, we look at salmonella data. But when it goes into the supply chain until the retail, you don't really have much handle over the product. And on the other hand, uh, other end, we have consumers who are getting sick. So that might be because of them not cooking the chicken, right? And that's that's one part of the story, but how can we understand what happens to the chicken during the supply chain? And so we started, and and of course we know that there is uh, there, there is a chance of temperature abuse of the chicken. So, and I'm talking fresh raw chicken at this point, just for the um, sake of this particular experiment. And uh, we started doing temperature abuse experiments on the chickens, uh, cyclic temperature abuse, and we just didn't do like one single piece of chicken, we actually took like a pallet of chicken. We, you know, a whole real world deal kind of a deal and moved the pallet in and out of the walk-in coolers to simulate temperature abuse. And what we ultimately did was we were able to develop prediction models and equations where we can, if you have the time temperature data, you'll be able to predict which box on that pallet can spoil first. And if all that data is going into the cloud, where the technology is available to capture the data and send it to the cloud, the time temperature data, but there is no way or nobody's adding value to that data where we can transform that data into something a lot more meaningful. Yes, I know that the, you know there is time temperature and stuff like that, but if I know that there was a temperature abuse for, say, two hours, our, our models will be able to tell you how much that has affected the shelf life what will be the loss for that particular retailer? Or can you divert the product to somewhere else? Or can you send it to the food bank? Or, you know, what can you do with the product? So that, again, with the supply chain, integration of IoT, IoT sending the data to the uh, to the cloud with the mathematical models, and now all the stakeholders getting involved to you know, understand what's happening to the product, that's Industry 4.0. That's the live example that, that, uh, that we worked on, published, and... Um, we are also part of a bigger grant to to do more work on that. So. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, you're right. We we collect a lot of data, and, and there's probably opportunities to collect even more data. But how do we turn that into something of uh, that's actionable? How how do we turn that into something where decisions can be made to to improve the process? Right. So you mentioned um, changes in temperature, and and of course, uh, meat is susceptible to spoilage. Um, which is a big challenge for for the industry. Um, you've been working on something called functional ice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So the the the, the concept of functional ice came has been 
I mean, it was born like only just eight years back, but the desire to do something for the stakeholders in agriculture has been there for a long period of time. So when I was in fish and fisheries, I had this opportunity to walk eight villages, fishing villages in India and the coastal line and talk to the to the women and children about their nutrition needs. And that was one of the projects that I was involved in when I was in India. And I saw the wretched conditions there and the fact that they don't have food. They, you know, the fish spoils. They're sitting on the street side and, you know, selling fish and all that. Of course, this, sometimes they use fish. Sometimes they, uh, sometimes they use ice. Sometimes they don't use ice for preservation. And as I, you know, moved along and Alaska to Alabama and poultry and all that, refrigeration undeniably is the way to preserve food or fish and meat and uh, I would say fish and poultry at least, uh, right? And uh, and in terms of meats as well, we use ice in fish a lot and uh, we use preservatives, uh, you know, antimicrobials in our poultry industry as well. But what happens when we add an antimicrobial or you spray an antimicrobial on a particular product? It attacks the bacteria, it kills the bacteria in the initial first, say, two, four hours, whatever it is. And then we have a tailing effect that the number of bacteria will not go below that certain limit. And so that point, from that point, your spoilage bacteria start increasing or they, you may have some problems with food safety, problems with food quality and, and, and spoilage. So how do you have a continuous sustained pressure on bacteria over the period of time is the question. So uh, since I know that ice is a very commonly used uh, medium for cooling uh, in the seafood side, and I've seen it in poultry side as well a lot, uh, why can't we improve the, the, the ability of ice to do something more? And my master's research uh, in Alaska was on ice-stored salmon and, and tracking the dynamic spoilage microflora on the salmon. And we know that there are certain specific uh, spoilage microorganisms that show up towards the end of, uh, uh, towards the later part of the shelf life, which will actually cause the spoilage, not the bacteria that are in the initial phases. So it's important to target those bacteria and start killing them as well, because only then you are going to improve the microbial shelf life of it. So the idea was, why can't we add something to the eye, to the water, freeze it up so that the antimicrobial or ingredient gets locked in? And then it, as the ice melts, it will slowly and continuously release that antimicrobial on the surface of the fish or the chicken or whatever the product might be. Thus, continuously killing, having an antimicrobial pressure on to the microorganisms. So we use, uh, you know, uh, FDA, USDA approved uh, ingredients and chemicals. And in doing so, because now you have changed the ionic concentration of the water, you may end up having a lower melting point so that the ice may stay good for a longer period of time and so that people may not have to waste money on, on buying more ice, especially in rural and poor uh, communities around the world. And so uh, it also improves shelf life. It can improve food safety. Uh, you know, we're talking about yield as well at times. And uh, so just by modification of ice that is commonly used, you can have all these different effects. Of course, there is no silver bullet and not one particular chemical can or ingredient can do all these things. 
there you have to pick and choose what what is important for you so that's where we actually that, that's where the idea of functional ice in, came into picture is that you're adding functionality to the ice that exists and the the idea to go behind ice is because it is universal it is universally made it is universally used people know ice uh, so the the ability to adopt ice to make a difference is going to be much more fast, uh, much more easier. People will, uh, uh, you know, easily adapt it and use it. Uh, and the chemicals are FDA, USDA approved. Uh, they are grass. So nobody's going to get hurt uh, as well. Uh, and it's, the, the you don't need any extra infrastructure either. I mean, you can just take one chemical, pour it in water where they make block ice, pour mm-hmm. it in water, mix it up, you get ice. So in countries where you don't have technologies, where it is difficult to set up infrastructure, you can simply do something like this with some commonly available chemicals or in food ingredients that are in the market. You can go to a superstore. There are several food ingredients that have antimicrobial properties that you can put in there and you can capture them and so on. And you can harness those abilities as well. So that's how that that's the concept of functionalized. We have tested it um, on uh, on poultry, of course, uh, in uh, on breast fillets, and we have published that paper, and we were able to see even a yield increase of up to three uh, percent. We were able to see the ref- uh, you know that the drip loss was reduced and so on. This was one of the formulations, and then we have uh, we have tested it on seafood in the wet markets, in the lab as well as in the wet markets in like hot, tropical countries like Honduras and uh, India and Nigeria on the street side uh, fish markets. We've tested it, and uh, right now we are doing work in Costa Rica, uh, the University of Costa Rica has uh, funded that project. We've, um, there, there are some other countries, governments of countries that are interested in working on it and some other large world-scale NGOs interested in it because that again ties into food waste and reducing food waste and food loss, essentially spoilage, uh, making food available to people, uh, improving, uh, you know, uh, reducing food insecurities around the world and sustainability as well. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Working with nature and not against it. Chickens fed AX3 Digest consume significantly less feed and water to produce one pound of meat. Successful flock performance is determined during the first 10 days post-placement. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that most improved in barn performance, bird health, and a drier litter. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. When we started the interview, you mentioned, uh, you know, the importance for you of being involved in um, efforts that that make lives better for people in, in, in terms of food safety, in terms of product quality. And so it's been really interesting to hear about uh, how different aspects of your research have really um, address kind of different parts of that whole question or, or that whole approach of, of uh, making, uh, making lives better for people. So um, that's been great to hear. Uh, let's, let's change the subject a little bit. Um, 
What about mentorship? Um, how do you approach your mentorship of your students? Um, and, and how have you been influenced by uh, people in your life? Yeah, I think my advisors, my mentors, and people around me have significantly added to, uh, to my mentorship efforts and my mentorship philosophy. One thing, and my own flair and passion also plays a major role in this. One of the things that I always tell my students, and when I, even when I select the students, is that I want to have students who are out-of-the-box thinkers, who can think on their feet. They have the passion to do something more. They, they're not here to just get a master's or a PhD degree and move on in life. I want them to have that burning desire in them to contribute to the society. The motto of my life has been, will be, until I die, is science for the benefit of mankind. I have lived by it. I work on, work on it every single day. As I hit my head on the pillow at night, I think about it and I say, what have I done? today to help humanity a mankind and I'm very passionate about it as you may notice from my works as well and so I feel that I want to have this philosophy in our students because I think as scientists we have gained the knowledge in science to create an impact on the world that the the taxpayers the governments the institutions uh, that we sit in our response, uh, they have put that responsibility on our shoulders to say, hey, we have trained you, go make a difference. Help us out. There are people in need everywhere. And so having your eyes open to these things, having the passion, and that is something that I look for in these students. And I'm very lucky to say that I have got those students. And they come come with passion to me. And I... I train them to become scientists take that passion and say okay well let's let's train you on different things let's make you a better scientist let's see how your approach or your passion can help our industry and i'll give you one example but three rather uh, we have merged food uh, poultry science with data analytics where one student got a phd in poultry science with option in food science and um, major focus on on uh, data analytics. The other one got a master's with focus on uh, with poultry supply chain and uh, uh, poultry uh, poultry spoilage uh, and supply chain. So he took supply chain courses, moved on to do a PhD in supply chain. Now he has a food science background and now we have elevated them to supply chain. So when they come back to the industry, they're going to be that unique individual who has a food background and who has a supply chain background. So, that's that's what I think where it's going. And the student had that interest. We had the same thing with operations management, a student doing the operations. And so my mentorship is, you know, philosophy is to understand the student and to work with the student to further their interest and passion while incorporating our poultry science and food sciences field into their passion so that we can create these individuals that are going to be meaningful contributors to our society to our industry and solve these big picture problems that that we're going to have in the future as well. Okay, well, thank you very much, Dr. Moray. That, uh, that's, uh, those are inspiring words and uh, it's been really enjoyable speaking with you today. 
thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, uh, join the Poultry Podcast Show. And uh, thank you to the audience for uh, watching. And uh, hopefully this was uh, um, useful and, and uh, insightful for you as well. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again next time. Thank you so much.